0: I want to start off by looking at some statistics on electricity consumption published by the CSO today, uh, which will bring us into another broader discussion about the whole energy and alternative energy agenda. Uh, There's a lot happening on the interest rate front this week, so I think we should talk about that because it's very relevant to economic activity and particularly to market activity. Um, there is a lot going on on financial markets at the moment, both in terms of currency movements, um, in terms of long term interest rates. And of course, all of those commodities, those important commodity prices continue to remain at elevated levels. And um, I, I find it really interesting some of the news stories about China at the moment. So um, I think if we get a chance, it would be worthwhile having a discussion on what is the most populated country in the world and what is also the second largest economy in the world in terms of GDP as conventionally measured. But I want to start off with the CSO's data on energy consumption. And um, these data really feed into what has become an issue of significant political and environmental controversy here in this country in recent times. And that is the growth of data centres. It is estimated that there are currently 70 facilities operating across Ireland who would be deemed data centres. Okay, And these are buildings that basically contain equipment that store data, quite simply. Uh, But they are big electricity consumers. And um, some of the headline statistics that come out today are very, very, important and significant. Um, The electricity consumption by data centres increased by 32% in 2021 compared to 2020. And between the first quarter of 2015 and the final quarter of 2021, there was growth in electricity consumption of 265% by data centres. The percentage of metered electricity consumed by those data centres has increased from 5% in 2015 to 14% in 2021. That is an increase um, for the geeks out there. That is an increase of 2,757 gigawatt hours. Um, and the the, the the rationale for this increased um, electricity consumption by data centers is, is quite straightforward. You know, we're we're seeing The growth in the number of data centres, but we're also seeing existing data centres using more and more electricity. So the key message from this is that uh, data centres are growing in significance in Ireland. They are big consumers of electricity. Um, The generation of electricity has environmental implications, particularly um, if the electricity is not being produced in what we would term a renewable way. So I think these numbers are certainly going to increase the political debate and controversy around these data centres because uh, government is certainly getting a lot of criticism from the opposition. Um, and in particularly the Green Party is getting a lot of criticism over being in a government that is presiding over significant growth in these data centres.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting for, on a number of respects. And I don't genuinely don't know the answers to these questions. And please, this is not quiz time. I'm not trying to catch you out. But do we know whether these data centres employ many people? No. We don't know or they don't?
0: Sorry, they don't employ very many people. They have a very, very low level of labour intensity. And uh, there was so one... What, why,
1: do, why do we think they're a good thing then?
0: Well, they provide... Are some... they a good thing? Uh, well, that's the question. Are they a good thing? Um I, I I guess they are part of the portfolio that these multinational companies that operate in Ireland are creating here.
1: Yeah. And when they build them, they often make noises in their press releases about positioning them close to sources of alternative energy. Is there any data or evidence that they actually managed to achieve that or do they just take it from the grid? I'm, I'm not
0: sure what the answer to that question is to be perfectly honest i suspect it's a bit of both i think some are being powered by renewable energy um i think the majority are probably being consumed from the uh the grid uh but i suppose the point about today's data really is that um you know, they're accounting now for 14% of the consumption of domestic electricity produced. So that's, pretty significant.
1: that's very significant, mm-hmm. one would have thought. I mean, there's lots of stuff that one could talk about when it comes to this particular issue, but energy generally, and I'm reminded there to mention something in the recent IMF and World Bank reports on the world economy, Um, on a number of issues uh, to do with energy and the environment. Uh, The the substantive one is, what do we do, uh, is the question um, about the energy shock. What should governments be doing? We know what they are doing. They're trying very hard to protect everybody um, from the cost of living crisis. And they are doing, different governments to a differing extents, are targeting those measures at the uh, lower income households. Uh, which you could certainly understand from a political point of view, from a human point of view. The IMF and World Bank were really interesting on this, and they were talking about the lessons that we learned from the last time we had an energy crisis in the 1970s, when governments tried to do similar sorts of things. And they both said all of the evidence is that all this does, really, for the system as a whole, uh, obviously it, it, it makes a difference to poor income households, but for the for the economy as a whole, for society at the very least, just prolongs the agony, prolongs the problem. And um, at worse, it actually makes it worse. Uh, and in, in the sense that we still end up consuming too much of this very expensive energy. And they are very economist about it. The economics of this, to use the jargon, is that you need to encourage both income and substitution effects. They don't use that jargon. But well, what do I mean by that? Well, when the price of something goes up, The idea is that um, your real income has gone down, so you can't afford it as much. So you're going to have to consume less of it. That's the income effect. And or you're going to substitute, you're still going to demand energy, but you're going to take it from other sources. And that's the argument about switching to alternatives. These organizations, along with plenty of others, actually, are pointing out now that the cost of producing electricity from alternatives like wind and solar in particular are now far less than all of the other main sources of energy. It used to be the case when we talked about this a few years ago, Jim, you and I both both co-authored a report for the Irish Wind Energy Association which looked at the way in which the price of wind energy had been falling and was getting close to uh, things like gas-fired power stations and that the cost was becoming quite similar. Uh, In most parts of the world now, wind and solar are now well below the costs of electricity generated by gas-fired turbines. So it's it's that that fall in energy cost, cost of energy production, cost of electricity production has continued. And the the the, the business secretary, I think he's the business secretary, Quasi Kuateng, put out a chart the other day saying exactly that. And it was quite jaw-dropping. And so you know the we we have to decarbonize our economies. We have to do these things. And the more you subsidize fossil fuels, the longer it's going to take to do, is the message the IMF and the World Bank are doing. So yes, we have to do something about people who need heat. They need to be able to eat and cook their food. But in the round, do as little as you can, as you can politically get away with, is their message. And as economists, and I think as environmentalists, we would support that. It doesn't sound very the human thing to do, but it is certainly, I think, from an environmental point of view, the right thing. And just as, a, as a, an aside on that, um, there are stories about the environment every day, of course, and they tend to get lost given the news flow about Ukraine. Um, so many things are getting lost, actually, in, with the news flow about Ukraine, quite understandably. Um, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, Google, and Tesla, Elon Musk again, in the, the last few days have pledged, along with a number of private equity investors, over $2 billion for startup funding, for carbon capture technologies. And that's the idea that you can actually, using technology or planting seaweed at the bottom of the oceans or all sorts of other things, um, clean carbon out of the atmosphere. And that, according to many scientists, has to be part of the solution going forward. As well as that, in excess of two billion, Joe Biden has pledged uh, an extra three and a half billion for something called removal hubs. He's going to build four of those. So there's lots of things going on. There was an article in Nature, I think, last week, a very respected scientific publication, saying that if we continue with the efforts that we've made so far, um, which are a lot of efforts, and we keep our foot to the pedal, as it were, on decarbonizing our economy, there is actually a good chance we will keep the ultimate rise in temperature to below 2%. So that was optimistic. It came with lots of caveats. Um, It certainly didn't suggest we need to be complacent. It strongly suggested that we need to do more. Um, At the very least, we need to continue doing what we're doing. So um, some some modest optimism, good news about the environment, but with a very strong message that um, we we are all as individuals going to have to do more. Uh, The scientists and the venture capitalists are going to have to do more things like this carbon capture stuff. Which um, one advocacy group that I've seen says that this is this technology, this idea of carbon capture, now finally is going to go mainstream after much skepticism. So I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic about that during a time when it's quite hard to be optimistic about very much. Jim, I think you'd agree.
0: I would agree, Chris. Uh, Bill Gates' book last year, "How to Avoid a Climate Disaster," uh, wrote he wrote very interestingly about stuff technology like carbon capture. So it, it is good to see uh, the brains and the money being pushed in the direction of trying to alleviate um, a lot of the problems that humanity is facing up to. Um, in Dublin, in Ireland, last week in County Wicklow, in fact, uh, we got the launch of the first solar farm, um, and, I, and I was I was looking at the pictures of it and. Um, It kind of surprises me that people could object profusely to such uh, an installation. Um, It's the
1: same over here in the UK, Jim. If you want to build social housing or wind farms, the the reaction from locals is is the same. Um, Any kind of change, development seems to bring out uh, all of the objectors. And I think, again, societally, we have to ignore that and say this is something that is non-negotiable now. We have to do it. I think there are smart ways of doing it and dumb ways of doing it. One of the things that I would offer people in local communities who are living next to solar farms and wind farms is that, okay, listen to their objections and try to um, alleviate some of them. And there are lots of ways that you can do that. But one very key way would be allow them to share in the revenues from these things, offer them a financial incentive to live near or in, in some degree approximate. Um, location to these things that they object strongly to. There are lots of ways in which I think this could be made more attractive for local communities, but everybody, all of us, we're going to have to suck this up and um, we're going to have to live with more onshore and offshore wind and these solar farms uh, because I think from an environmental perspective it is non-negotiable.
0: Yeah, there was a town hall meeting in Dundrum here in Dublin last week uh, basically organised to object to um, a development of apartments and houses and stuff in close to Dundrum village. And um, I was looking at um, video coverage of the the meeting and um, it struck me that you had a lot of sort of middle age to older people um, objecting to building new residential accommodation for a variety of reasons, some of which may be justified, of course, but objecting for a variety of reasons. And it's just struck me once again that, you know, if this attitude had been adopted 40, 50 years ago when Dundrum um, was farmland, uh, those people wouldn't have been allowed live in the area and hence wouldn't have been in a position to sit in a town hall meeting and object. So th- there's a strong sense that, um, and we've spoken about this before in a lot of different forms, particularly in relation to stuff like pensions and so on, uh, th- and house price indeed, uh, th- there really is um, discrimination going on against the younger generation. Um, yeah,
1: there uh, is the, definitely that. And the this older is.
0: Comfortable generations are just not interested in helping them.
1: And the, the other aspect of this that I find interesting is that this, this invokes or reminds me of one of the great lies that we as a species, as human beings, tell ourselves. You know all the old cliches, the check is in the post and some other more lurid ones, which I won't go to, into on a family show. Um, but the other one of the cliche that lie that we tell ourselves is that we embrace change. Um, we always say that our bosses always say it. The chief executive says, yes, my door is always open to new ideas and we walk around saying things like, yes, change is good, change, we love it, bring it on. Absolute crap. Absolute don't.
0: crap, absolutely. As long as it doesn't affect us, it's great. Yeah.
1: We hate uh, it. We yeah, loathe yeah. and detest change. And the older we get, the more we detest it. And I think that's what you're alluding to there with the intergenerational thing that's going on. Indeed.
0: Um, they are getting a little bit parochial, again, bringing you back down to the beautiful southeast and Waterford. Um Four years ago, thereabouts, at this stage, the Waterford Greenway was launched. Um, it's been an incredible success. It's a 46 kilometre, uh, the longest greenway in Ireland. It's an old disused railway track between Waterford City and Dungarvan. Uh, hugs the coastline and also is very close to the Cumberland mountains So it's absolutely beautiful. It has been an incredible success. It has generated all sorts of economic activity. The local village close to where I grew up and I grew up in the middle of no place, but the closest village uh Thomas is now a hive of activity. We have four or five restaurants and coffee shops. There's bicycle hire businesses. There's all sorts of activity. And in fact, um, a couple of years ago, I witnessed something I didn't think I'd ever see in KilmacThomas, Thomas, a traffic jam in the middle of the day. So the Greenway has revolutionized Waterford and has really, really upped the ante on the whole development of the county as a tourism haven but the point is that when that was being developed um, I spoke at a few um, information evenings in favour of it I was 100% in favour of the Greenway because I had looked at what the Western Greenway achieved up in County Mayo and um, I certainly was a convert and I could see it working wonders and of course I'm a cyclist as well so that kind of helps but there was massive opposition down in Watford from farmers, particularly whose land the railway went through, and you know they were fearful about people coming into their land about cattle being left off and all sorts of antisocial behavior and um some of those who were most opposed are now amongst the most regular users of the greenway and uh I question them at this stage about uh you know why they were so opposed and why they're now such uh avid users of the facility. And their argument would be that if they hadn't objected in the manner that they did object, that the Greenway would not have been built to the standards that it was built to. So in other words, they forced the developers of the Greenway to actually ensure that it was built to the highest possible standards with security, um, protecting cattle, etc. cetera, um, a, a key element of that. So I, th- it- I think...
1: Is that an example of what we call ex-post rationalizations, Jim?
0: Uh, yeah, of, of, of course it is. Yeah, of, of course it is. And um, I suspect also that um, the financial incentive helped as well. But anyway, be that as it may, it just shows you how we get so much objection to so much development and how we are basically, and I agree with you, fundamentally anti-change. Um, but that's not good enough. You know, we, we we've got to change, we've got to move on. Uh, we of course have to do it in a responsible way, uh, but 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 that's life. Chris, moving away from that whole environmental agenda, um, it's a big week on the interest rate front. Um, this morning the Australian Central Bank increased its interest rates by a quarter of one percent, 25 basis points, uh, the first move since November 2010. And this week, we have the US Federal Reserve expected to increase interest rates by a half of 1%, which will be the biggest increase in 22 years. And on Thursday, the Bank of England is expected to increase interest rates. So central bankers are definitely upping the ante in terms of addressing this, what was a transitory inflation problem. They're clearly becoming very concerned about it at this stage. A lot more to come, do you think?
1: Yeah, uh, one of our favorite bloggers, uh, a guy called Noah Smith, another Substack writer, uh, has put something out uh, just before we came on air, actually, speculating, uh, without forecasting, he's not daft enough to be a forecaster, asking the question, what are you going to do if US interest rates go to 8%? Now, that's against a background where we've come over the last few weeks to what is now considered in financial markets to be a very aggressive Fed that will take interest rates on current market forecasts to about 3% by the end of the year. And Smith is is outlining the circumstances, not a probability, but the circumstances in which interest rates could go to 8% in the United States. And one thing that I would be absolutely sure of amidst all of the uncertainties that are out there at the moment, if interest rates in the United States do go to 8%, we are in for a lot of financial and economic trouble, and that we will almost certainly have a recession um, in, in the US and elsewhere, probably globally, if the circumstances arise that take us there. And the main circumstance that would take interest rates to 8% is that these rises that we're going to see this week that we've seen thus far, and the rises still to come over the next few months, are come at a time when inflation continues to accelerate and doesn't fall away, or at least stabilize in the way that these central bankers and indeed many in financial markets, all of us really, hope that inflation stabilizes and begins to fall. And nobody really knows where it's going, because no, no but very, very few people forecast that it would do what it's done already. So trying to anticipate what inflation will do next is pretty tough. A lot depends on what happens in Ukraine and therefore to commodity uh, prices in general and energy prices in particular. Uh, if the oil price was to, and gas price were both start to start to fall now, for example, um, that would be un- unalloyed good news. So there, there are just so, so many variables. Uh, but one of the things that has happened over the last while as a result of the Fed talking about being more aggressive is that lots of things have happened in financial markets that would normally have attracted an awful lot of attention, at least in the business pages, if not actually the front pages of many of the um, traditional and non-traditional media. And I'll I'll just run you through some of them. Um, One thing that attracted no attention last week at all, apart from geeks like us, is that the first quarter of of um, of the year in the United States saw an actual fall in GDP. That's one half of a recession. So we might already be there in the United States. There are reasons to think that that might have been an aberration. But falls in GDP are pretty rare in in countries like the United States. The dollar, in terms of its overall trade-weighted index, is at a 20-year high. The dollar is really, really strong. One of the things that's very weak against the dollar is the Japanese yen. The Japanese yen has crashed against the US dollar. And the yen is now at its lowest point in over two decades. And again, nobody's paying any attention to that, unless perhaps you are Japanese.
0: Yeah, I checked it out this morning, Chris, and when you see dollar-yen at 130, it's a long time since I remember that.
1: As I say, over two decades. The emerging markets are in a lot of trouble for the, for all these reasons, because American interest rates are going up, they've got dollar-denominated debt, um, inflation hurts them, and the... The fall in emerging market government debt prices and other forms of debt is the third worst this century. Emerging markets, that's one example of a more general issue that we could be heading or in the the start of another emerging market crisis. Again, nobody's paying any attention to that outside narrow financial market circles. Going back to currencies again, we talked about the yen being at a low. Um, The euro isn't mimicking the yen's fall, but it is back to where it was in March 2020, when the pandemic was raging um, at first, and there were panics about what was going what that actually meant for Europe. So the euro, as we know, from a trade-weighted basis, and particularly against the dollar, uh, we spoke about it before, I think, when it was higher than it is now, and speculated it might be on its way to parity against the dollar. Um, so far, so good in terms of that we won't call it a forecast um, we'll call it amusing, um, a, a prognostication or something. But it, it's, it's about 105 um, dollar euro. So that's something that, again, I think would have attracted an awful lot more attention. Um, the thing that that weak euro does is that it exaggerates the inflation shock that Europe's in the middle of and it jacks up import prices. The flip side of that is that the strong dollar is good for the US inflation story, but terrible the eurozone, and again, the story behind import prices, the import prices in Europe are rising at their fastest in 23 years.
0: And of course, the currency is more important to Europe than the states because uh, the states is more of a closed economy,
1: absolutely. Yeah, um, and the another thing that normally attracts great attention in financial markets, because as you say, China depending on which measure you use, is either the world's largest economy or the second largest economy, their currency is weakening a lot. And it's, um, the, whenever the yen takes a big fall, it's usually because the Chinese government wants it to, because there are. I mean, it's not a freely traded, fully convertible currency in the way that the dollar, the euro and the pound and the yen are. Um, but it's taken its biggest fall in seven years. And um, that's not good for China watchers and people are, who are wondering about what that means, but not many people are wondering what it means because nobody's paying it any attention. Um, another thing that, of course, has been going on that's attracted a wee bit more attention because it affects us more um, individually has been um, the fall in the Nasdaq and the fall in share prices of things like Netflix. Netflix price has absolutely collapsed, but so has Facebook's, um, that or Meta as it's called now, and a whole host of these technology company darlings, a lot of these stocks that had a huge ramp up as a result of the pandemic, so-called growth stocks, have come tumbling down. And again, that fall in the Nasdaq would, under normal circumstances, attract headlines saying stock market crash. And because of the headlines being dominated by the war, rightly so, we're not seeing much discussion of that. Um, There's weird things happening in labour markets. We've talked a little bit about this, which is the um, ways in which there are huge job shortages, but it remains the case, and the IMF talked about this a lot in its annual report last week about the mismatch between um, the unemployment uh the, the ratio of vacancies to the level to the level of employment. To what and so what? What's that? So we've seen um, employment, the level of employment, not get back to where it either was before the pandemic or, or indeed should have been if trend growth had continued. And yet vacancies, we had another vacancy piece of data out from the States this morning, vacancies are at an all-time high. So it's something really weird. So the actual amount of jobs in the economy, people employed, hasn't recovered um, nearly as much as we might have hoped. But the amount of vacancies out there is extraordinary. So where are all of these workers? And there are lots of theories about why this has happened. We've talked about the Great Resignation. People are just still not going back to work following the pandemic. Uh, the, the rise in demand, the rise in vacancies for workers uh, is in areas where they just don't exist. That's job mismatch. A lot of ret- a lot of older people, 50 plus people, have left the workforce altogether um, during the pandemic and aren't coming back. So there are some explanations, but they don't really uh, account for all of it. So there's all this stuff going on, Jim, that really is is quite worrying. And yeah.
0: I, I was updating a PowerPoint presentation this morning that I'm delivering tomorrow night and I was going through all of these indicators and uh, it, it does present a pretty frightening story. You look at the strength of the dollar, the weakness of the euro, the yen that you've spoken about, long-term interest rates continue to rise. Uh, US 10-year close to breaching the 3% level. Germany is at 09 Ireland is at 1.6%. Uh, In a historical context, they're pretty low bond yields, but relative to where they've been over the last three or four years, we've seen incredible increases. Um, Oil prices are staying up. Uh, Brent crude trading at $106 a barrel today. Natural gas prices, coal prices continue to be elevated, and commodity prices generally continue to be elevated. So uh, there's a lot of um, financial market indicators there that would definitely give you significant cause for concern about the outlook for the global economy. And then you look at China, as you say, depending on how you measure it, um, on a purchasing power parity basis, it's the largest economy in the world. On a normal GDP basis, it's the second largest economy in the world. Uh, it is the most populated country in the world. So it's and it really is the reason why uh, during the great financial crash that the global economy didn't go into a much deeper recession is because China sort of remained the economy that, that continued to grow through that crisis. But the signs out of China are, well, for some, are becoming increasingly ominous. If you look, for example, at the uh, Omicron variant as it spreads again in China, uh, that the areas where it's spreading most rapidly at the moment are areas that account for 40% of GDP and 80% of Chinese exports. So you can just imagine uh, with ongoing restrictions, lockdowns, what impact that's going to have on global supply chains. Uh, The investment boom in China would appear to be running out of steam uh, because basically they have overinvested, particularly in the construction area. Uh, Last year with Evergrande, we saw the emergence of a significant debt problem in property related companies and that was only the tip of the iceberg so there's a serious construction related debt problem which obviously has implications for the banking system so china is in a little bit of trouble at the moment and uh if if china starts to go south in a significant way well that then does have further significant implications for the global economy So you'd be concerned about the next couple of years in terms of global economy. There's no doubt about that.
1: Yeah. And the more I delve into the numbers, because similar to you, I've been doing a lot of um, digging into the data recently for work that I've been doing, similar to yourself. Um, It's very hard, very hard indeed, not a not to fall into the trap of being a forecaster and b to the extent that you think about the, the future of the next year or two. You focus on things like what the IMF is saying about risks to their central forecast. Their central forecast is now lower than it was six months ago. So they are reducing their estimates for global growth. They're not forecasting a global recession, not yet anyway, but they talk almost uniformly. Not 100%, but all of the risks they think, or most of the risks, are to the downside and possibly considerably to the downside Uh, for the reasons that we described, is that inflation might still run out of control, that central banks have to jack up interest rates by more than um, we currently think, that the war in Ukraine gets worse before it gets better. All of these risk factors are very obvious. And the ones that you might think about in terms of upside potential, um, I think uh, they aren't noticeable by their absence. The only way that you could, I think, be optimistic from a financial economic point of view is, first of all, to imagine, we would love to imagine for a second, that the situation in Ukraine gets a lot better quite quickly. And secondly, that it's kind of like the ways in which things turned around after the last time, last few times that we've had financial market trouble. And I'm thinking about the dot-com crash of nearly a quarter century ago now that started in March 2000, when financial markets finally turned around in March 2003. The situation was awful. Uh, We would have had a conversation not wholly dissimilar to the one we've just had. We'd have said, look, there's nothing to point to for things to get better. And yet they did, out of a clear blue sky, right up and then until, from March 2003, until the financial crisis hit. And with notable exceptions, very few people saw that financial crisis coming. That too came out of a clear blue sky. And in March 2000, it's always March, in March 2009, We would have had a conversation not wholly dissimilar to this one, which we would have said, oh, my God, things look terrible. The outlook is awful. We've just lived through the most awful period and it isn't going to get better very soon. And yet financial markets, stock markets in particular, but also other financial markets started in March 2009 on the basis of no news whatsoever. Um, The news flow such as it was, was pessimistic, bearish, awful. The... um, Markets turned in March 2009 and basically went on a tear right up until, gosh, another March. It really is the Ides of March, isn't it? Until March 2020, when the pandemic really hit us or we became aware of what the pandemic meant and markets collapsed at the beginning of March 2020. And then on the basis of no news whatsoever, off they went again. Um, they did have another leg up on the basis of news, which was the news of the vaccine. So sometimes they do respond very obviously to news flow. But the, thing about, the, only th- the only reason why I'm going through all of these episodes of When Markets Turned is that they always seem to do this, at least in our careers, when you least expect it. So that's a way of saying, Jim, we could work ourselves up into a big frenzy of bearishness and pessimism and gloom about the outlook for very good reasons about which we speak all the time. But we just need to be mindful that uh, right now everybody's that way as well.
0: Chris, um, before, I know we're up against the clock at this stage, but before we go, I'd I'd just like to bring us back to a more upbeat conversation. You reside in Great Britain. You must be incredibly proud of your Prime Minister at this stage. Important local elections imminent. How do you read the UK political situation at the moment?
1: Uh, we have, as you say, Jim, we haven't got time. And no, I am not proud of Mr Johnson. I'm not proud of our government. Um, he got a big standing ovation today when he made a virtual address to the Ukraine parliament. They they like him. I suspect the Ukraine parliament likes him more than our own parliament does, actually, including his own backbenchers at the moment. Um, but the local elections, uh, I think will be interesting. I don't think they'll be fatal for Johnson. I think they will be awful in terms of the number of seats that the Conservatives lose. But like everything else, whatever it is that he does, whether it's party gate, whether it's lying to the House of Commons, whether it's lying to the Queen, whether it's lying about Brexit, whether it's about doing Brexit and all the damage that Brexit has done, it doesn't matter. He gets away with it and he'll get away with this as well. Uh, would be my central expectation. My hope would be that the Conservative Party gets rid of him, but I think that that at this stage of proceedings is very, very unlikely. So for us political anoraks, the local elections will be interesting, but I don't think that they are going to be cataclysmic for the British political scene.
0: They're going to be particularly interesting on the island of Ireland, in Northern Ireland specifically.
1: They are, and there's a huge piece in today's FT, at least in the online edition, on the Shinners. And it is very, very interesting. It talked about the ways in which they they seem to be both in government in the north and in opposition. They seem to be a bit like Schrodinger's cat um depending on where which way you look at them that, that you don't you'd be sometimes hard pressed to believe that they've been in power or shared power for for years now in the north, and the north's economy of course isn't in the greatest of shapes, despite Sinn Fein's policies presumably given they're in power being implemented. Um, And it talked about the policies of the Shinners in the way in which they appeal to the young in particular. We know all about that because of the promises to do with housing and health. But one thing I was going to ask you about this, Jim, I was actually prompted to look at the Sinn Féin manifesto and in particular the Sinn Féin budget um, that they proposed last year, uh, budget 2022. And they used to propose a wealth tax, didn't they, on um, uh, non-farm... Uh, assets of over a million quid it seems to have disappeared um i'm uh, have you noticed that
0: uh, i haven't yet it's, it's become uh people before profits and the th- those people continue to push for a wealth tax but no um
1: so they have shifted on that
0: they, they have shifted on that a- absolutely uh, i'm very I, pleased I, for you jim <laughs> jesus chris yeah thanks I, appre- <laughs> I i appreciate your concern but uh Listen, over the next two years, If the Irish government lasts that long, it will be incredibly interesting to see the policies being proposed by Sinn Féin, just to see the extent to which they start to move out and embrace people that previously would never have voted Sinn Féin. So it's going to be a really, really interesting political dynamic here.
1: Yeah, the piece in the FT essentially concluded that that, uh, Sinn Féin appeals to young people who don't remember anything the IRA did and that their promises on housing in particular, but also health, are very appealing because, of course, the promise is that they will solve the housing and health crises. Good luck with that would be my my comment um, response, but uh, it probably deserves a slightly more in-depth analysis than a a throwaway good luck. Uh, Jim, we are up against time. Unless you've got anything pressing that you'd like to add, we should probably call it there.
0: No, Now that I know my wealth is safe, I'm happy to talk to you.
1: Delighted for you, Jim.
0: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.